informed the naming of Henry's ships. His four greatest were the Trinity Royal, the Grass Dame, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost. All the rest were named after the Virgin Mary, the three persons of the Trinity, or a long list of various saints. King Henry saw himself as a servant of God, charged with imposing what he often brutally perceived as God's will. After ordering the killing of every male over the age of 12 in the French city, he told a Dominican friar who challenged him over the slaughter that he, Henry, was, quote, the scourge of God sent to punish God's people for their sins. Henry had an aggressive religious perspective on life, and so concerned was he to secure his standing in the afterlife that he ordered 23,000 masses to be said after his death. Yet, his reign as a king was deemed a success. We might say that he had a very successful career with an impressive resume filled out with military achievements and demonstrations of religious fervor. Why all this detail about a long-forgotten medieval king, you might ask? Well, I think Paul wants us to pay attention to similar features in his own background that he identifies as common to people in general. Paul's resume, equally, was impressive. He too had the background that seemed to guarantee career success in the eyes of the world at the time. And he lists seven resume highlights, four based on birth, three based on achievement. First, circumcision gave him the outward mark of religious qualification or membership of God's people gave him social status, legal standing, and security. Second, his bloodline was pure. He was born and bred an Israelite, a privilege that again conveyed membership of the people of God, another basis of security and relationship with God. Third, he belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, associated with Israel's first king, after whom, as Saul, he was named, a fact that gave him status among the Jews of the day. Fourth, not only did he have a pure Jewish ancestry, but he was a Hebrew through and through. These highlights of legal status, nationality, family origin, and race gave Paul a significant inherited pedigree. And he adds three further features based not on this inheritance, but on his own career achievement. First, as a Pharisee, he belonged to the strictest sect in Judaism, who noted for upholding the laws of purity and holiness. Paul kept its rules and its beliefs, thus qualifying him as religious. Second, loyalty to the law made him deeply committed to what he believed God wanted him to do, just like King Henry. In his case, persecution of Christians was uppermost for Paul. Third, claimed to live a blameless life because of his observance of the law. These highlights of Paul's impressive CV show that his pedigree and achievements were the basis of his life. He depended on them for a right relationship with God. Together, they all added up to what he calls collectively the confidence of the flesh. 
could no longer be the basis of security and confidence. They were just outward forms. He calls them rubbish. Stronger word might be that in Psalm 83 that we read, dung. They were a barrier to being in a true relationship with God. He's not saying that in and of themselves his background and achievement lacked merit. It is just that they gave a false security and a confidence of the flesh that came in the way of a real relationship with God made known in Christ. He now has a right relationship with Christ based on faith, not on all his previous qualifications or claims to special status. That relationship is now based not on what Paul can do, but what God in Christ has done that is certain and secure. Like Paul, the phrase confidence in the flesh aptly summarize, summarizes what our culture mandates as security. Confidence in the flesh can sum up a career that brings success, status, respect, and wealth. These are the collective elements that constitute careerism, whose relentless pursuit is sanctioned by our culture. But if we place reliance in them as our main source of security and identity, derived from our own achievement, then they lead to competition and jealousy with others, and other sinful tendencies. But more importantly, because they assume idolatrous status, they compromise the faith we should have in Jesus. They become the marks of our own attainment, identity, and security. And then, as idols, they substitute for faith in God's grace and provision, as demonstrated in Christ Jesus. What then are we to think? What is legitimate in terms of career? Where does the line of demarcation lie between legitimate ambition and achievement and the idolatry of careerism? For a start, we need to distinguish between vocation and career. A job is a job, but vocation comes directly from God, gives us our identity, coheres our gifts and talents, our personalities and temperaments to a divine purpose. Second, in contrast to careerism, which is predicated on self-fulfillment, vocation calls us to consider areas of need in the world where we might serve or help. And in identifying such needs, we look to God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. If we follow our calling, we use our gifts to make a difference in the world. Careerism brings with it the seduction of power, excessive desire for material security, and a longing for status, choices Jesus himself faced when tempted in the desert. A life lived with career at the center is one based on a confidence in the flesh. What differentiates vocation is that it is a life fully committed to Jesus that brings glory to God. There is some of Paul and King Henry in all of us. Maybe not the religious fanaticism, but certainly inherited features of race, ethnicity, and nationality, as well as a sense of our own. Paul is saying, they don't matter. They are real, but they don't give us any status before God. Let us cast aside the idolatry of a life based on confidence in the flesh. Instead, 
let our ambition be to dedicate our lives in faith, service, and obedience to the work God has called us to.